0: Let's get right to it.
1: If you have your pen, you can write down this definition of the millennium. The millennium is the time between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the time of His second coming, the final defeat of Satan, and the creation of the new heavens and new earth. I'll give you that sentence again. The millennium is the time between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the time of his second coming, the final defeat of Satan, and the creation of the new heavens and new earth. Second sentence. During the millennium, all who die trusting in Christ are raised spiritually to their temporary home where they reign as priests of God and of Christ. I'll give you that sentence again. During the millennium, all who die trusting in Christ are raised spiritually to their temporary home where they reign as priests of God and of Christ. If you're tracking such things, this is my view, personally, of the millennium. It is there. If you know what to look for, it's out in the open. There it is. Keith Matheson at Ligonier.com said this, I once heard someone define the millennium as a thousand-year period of time during which Christians fight over the proper interpretation of the book of Revelation. (laughs) He says, while this is amusing, that definition is obviously incorrect because Christians have been fighting over the interpretation of Revelation for 2,000 years. Let me just say up front this morning, if you showed up this morning with your view of the millennium in your pocket and you came ready to kind of box and kind of see how your view aligns up with the pastor's view, let me just tell you to let that go. Just let it go. If you if you showed up this morning and you think, I, I just know for certain that I am a progressive, pre-tribulation, covenantal, millennial, premillennialist, just... Just don't don't do that. Just think differently. Be eager today to hear of Jesus Christ. and Be very eager to hear of Jesus Christ. If you showed up today thinking, well, you know what? I don't know anything about this, and I don't think any of this even matters anyway. I mean, this is the oldest joke in the book when it comes to it, but some people will say, I'm not a post-millennialist, I'm not a pre-millennialist, I'm not an a-millennialist, I'm amillennialist. i am a pan millennialist I just believe it's all going to pan out in the end. I heard my dad say this from the pulpit in our church many years ago. Hope he listens to this sermon later. It's all going to pan out. It doesn't really matter. That's one thing think my dad thinks. It doesn't really matter... We don't really need to get into it too much. We just need to stick to the gospels, stick to, stick to the book of Acts, stick to the epistles. We can't really know. We shouldn't really know. I got an article from my dad this week and a text message to me and to my brother uh, from the Jerusalem Post about preparations for the third temple in Jerusalem and how it's possible, how there's planning and how some even uh, Christian organizations are teaming up with Jews to make sure that the third temple gets built. And I had to just write back and say, I don't want to do this on a text message, but I don't think we're seeing things the exact same way when it comes to what's going to happen in the future. And as we got through a few discussions and some uh, links to websites and views exchanged back and forth in text message, eventually my dad, I think jokingly, but perhaps seriously, just sent a quote trying to end the conversation. Jesus is coming again, Billy Graham. (laughs) as if to say that's kind of all that's all we need to know well let me just share with you there are no views that we can understand about revelation or more specifically about the millennium that in any way should make us think we should not pursue understanding these things and I want to remind I want to remind you again and again and again as we go through the book of Revelation that the book of Revelation is meant to reveal. The book of Revelation is not meant to conceal. The very beginning of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter one, verse one says, and this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypse, the revealing. This is not the concealing. This is not the let me say a few things but keep it bound up in code so that you have to go kind of figure it out and if you have the enigma, you'll understand what it means. No, it is a revealing you may not get all of your questions answered this morning about what the millennium is and what it means. On the way back from Waco uh, on Friday, on the way back from Louisville, we got to around Waco with our, together for the gospel team, about 10 of us in the van coming home. Uh, I decided to use the rest of our time to get ready for my sermon, thinking this would be great. I'll have the, 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 the group here can help me prepare my sermon for Sunday so I played Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 through 6 aloud, and I just said, I just want everyone to give me a question, at least one question or two, about the millennium that will help me kind of get ready for the sermon on Sunday. By the time we got to Belton, I had about 16 questions, and I realized this is a serious mistake. Uh, this, is, this is not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But I do think we can get close to all of those questions, which actually were very helpful. We need to get close to answering all those questions really by answering two questions with seven answers. Two questions with seven answers. Three answers in verses one through three, answering the question, how long must we suffer Satan? Verse one through three, three answers to the first question, how long must we suffer Satan? And then four answers in verses four through six to the question, What happens when we die? What happens when we die? Four answers in verses 4 through 6 to the question, what happens when we die? Let us pray and ask for God's help. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning to see with the eyes of our hearts and our minds in faith. I pray that you would help us not only seek to understand details, but be moved and stirred in our hearts toward faith and that you by your spirit through the preaching of your word would give us understanding. Father, I pray that there would be a better sermon heard and understood in your word and by the spirit than I've got on paper here. That we would leave more encouraged by your word, by the spirit than anything man could say. That we would see scripture clearly and that we might know you clearly. That our confidence in Christ might be strengthened up this morning. That our confidence there is such a thing as Christians and the clarity that we are one would be encouraged today. Father, maybe the clarity that we are not Christians, that we ought to seriously consider the gravity of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ as well as the things to come. We love you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. First question, how long must we suffer Satan? This is a dominant question in the book of Revelation and it is a dominant question in the life of every Christian in every time. Look with me back in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6 verse 9 through 20, 9 through 10. I'll pick up verse 11. Revelation chapter 6 verse 9 through 11. Thank John Hurley for bringing this to my attention this week and helping me think about this. Revelation 6, 9 through 10. This is in the moment of the fifth seal. We've got this question lurking back in Revelation, those who were under the altar having been slain for faith in Jesus Christ, wondering how long before you're going to avenge the blood. Look within your Bibles, hold your finger in Revelation, go to Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Second Peter chapter three verses one through four. I don't have the page number for you, but it's going to be a couple of books to your left. I lied. page 1019. Second Peter three, one through four. Peter says to the church, "This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved." In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and the Savior through your apostles, knowing, now listen, knowing, he says, this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. I think that means that the entire last days will be marked by scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, the scoffers will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Christians, the church is going to ask, how long? Because the world is going to mock the church, looking at them, saying, how long? Looks like He is not coming after all. There are more we could go to consider, but we have to ask this question, how long must we suffer Satan, either out of our own enduring persecution, even death, or of the world mocking us, looking at us like we are fools, waiting for Jesus to return? Well, how long must we suffer Satan? Three answers in verses 1 through 3. Read again verse 1 through 3, Revelation chapter 20. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding his hand, the key to the bottomless pit and great chain. There's an entire sermon in verse 1. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while." How long must we suffer Satan? First answer is, God is sovereign over Satan's every move. God is sovereign over Satan's every move. Now, this passage is not yet about the defeat of Satan. That's next week. This passage is about God's sovereign rule over the comings and the goings of Satan and his plan to redeem his people from all nations. Satan's every evil intention always only works in line with all of the plans of God in Jesus Christ. Always only make sure that you have the same theology before you have a timeline. Make sure that you have the same theology that Revelation 20 has. Do you have a theology like this? The angel of God can bind Satan, throw him into the pit for a thousand years with seeming no opposition. The angel just does it. Satan is seized, he's thrown into the pit, so Satan can no longer deceive the nations. And this might be a bad illustration, might be a a poor short-falling illustration, but you ever seen one of those dogs on leashes That you can let out from like six feet to like thirty feet. The the owner can keep the dog real close and you winds up. You keep the dog like three feet away, you can walk across the street and keep it away from children. But then when you get out farther, you can let that leash go 30, 40 feet. This is the kind of relationship God has with Satan. He's always on a leash. This not like this is the first moment where God says, you know what, I'm just totally out of control. Let's see if we can bound Satan for a while. He has been under God's control for all time. God seizes Satan when he wants. God releases Satan when he wants. God is not frustrated that Satan has somehow escaped like a rabid dog, and he may catch him one day, but man, that rascal sure is doing what he wants today. It is never the case Isn't this not the testimony from Job, which Cal read for us earlier? Whether it is the behemoth, whether it is dragons, whether it is darkness, whether it is chaos, whether it is the sin of men themselves to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ, God is sovereign over it all. The first answer to the question how long is sovereignty? God is sovereign. Make sure that you see this is the relationship between God and Satan when you start asking how long. It is okay to be at some times either in scripture or because of your suffering confused about God's plans. Why God might allow certain things in your life. I've had many questions myself. Why is this happening? Why is this allowed? A lot of things the past couple of months. God, why is this going on like this? And the Psalms teach to ask God sometimes, God, what are you doing? God, where are you? God, why is it working out on this? But Psalm chapter 115, verse two to three, teaches us to ask God about his plans based on our fundamental belief of his sovereignty. We may be questioning or confused sometimes about the plans, about how long God will let something go on, but on the basis of his sovereignty. So Psalm 115, verse two to three, says it like this, why should the nation say, why should they mock us? Why should the nation say of God's people, where is their God? Why doesn't God come save them? Why doesn't God do something? And here is the answer. Psalm 115 verse, why should say where is their God? Because, verse 3, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. He binds Satan when he wants. He conquers Egypt when he wants. He parts the Red Sea when He wants. He wins victories over nations whenever he wants. It is one thing to say, God, I know that you are sovereign, so what's the plan? It is a very other opposite thing to say to God. God, what is the plan, and are you even sovereign? The first answer to how long we must suffer Satan is God sovereignly binds and releases Satan. So the first answer is as long as God allows Answer number two. Satan's deception cannot stop the mission of the church to the nations. Answer number two. How long must we suffer Satan? Satan's deception cannot stop the mission of the church to the nations. Yes, this is the second answer without a time answer. Satan's deception cannot stop the mission of the church to the nations. God is intervening in the events of the earth and the ministry of Satan to what end? Does God stop all beheadings of Christians? No, He does not. But He does intervene in this passage on behalf of the nations. Heaven steps in to make sure the deception of the nations stops. The deception of the nations has a limited time. Satan's deception cannot stop the mission of the church to the nations. This is the mission of the church that people from every tribe, language, nation would hear the gospel and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ crucified and raised for their sins. We see this in what we call the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus tells the disciples, "'Go and make disciples of all nations.'" baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. We see this again in Acts chapter 1. As the Spirit is about to come on the disciples and come on to the church, it says, you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea and to the ends of the earth. And that's the whole book of Acts. The word getting from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. That's the story of the book of Acts. And that's where the book of Revelation is going all along. Look with me back at Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 10. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 10. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude, a vision into through the door of heaven that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Satan's deception cannot stop the mission of the church to the nations. God put stop it for a time. And yet, Satan is very active in the work of unbelief. That's the work that really needs to be stopped among the nations. Look at it in verse 3. What's the purpose of the millennium? What's the purpose of this binding for this time? It is the binding of Satan, verse 3, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. The time period, this 1,000 years where Satan is bound from deceiving the nations. That's the reason for the binding. Now, to me, this is one of the main reasons it seems the millennium is not a reference to a literal 1,000 years, but a reference to the time between the Great Commission and the end. There are a lot of other reasons, and there are some good reasons that maybe this is the best understanding, that it should be a literal 1,000 years. But to me, this most snugly fits into the narrative of the whole Bible, from the promise of the blessing of the nations being blessed through Abraham to the commission of the church to go make disciples of all nations, from the commission of the church in Acts 1.8 to go save and testify to people of all nations from the witness and revelation that all nations, languages, and tongues will be represented at the throne, worshiping God. Why is there a millennium? So that what God has said he would do through the preaching of the gospel to save all nations will happen. The nations are no longer deceived. Why is the Acts 1-8 mission unstoppable? One eschatological reason is that Satan is bound from deceiving the nations. So if this is the case, here is some application for you, church. Church. Every dollar that you give to get the gospel to people where it has never been heard is a dollar really well spent. Can't be stopped. If we get the gospel in the hands of faithful preaching people, to take the gospel to the nations and preach and teach the full counsel of God's word and teach the gospel to nations, people, entire peoples. We heard last week get together for the gospel, 3.2 billion people in nations who have no access to the gospel. You give a dollar, it will not be in vain. If you go on a mission trip to do the telling to a nation where there's no gospel, if you pray, if you pray for God to save the nations, for God to save those in nations who have never heard, friends, we can trust that the nations will hear. We trust the nations are going to hear. Not everyone in every nation, but the nations, as the nations hear, they will not be forever deceived. If you are feeling called to go to nations, Maybe even go to nations where the doors are locked, where a Christian visa won't get you in. Let me just tell you, they're open for business. They're open. They're open to Christians. Might be hard to get in, might be costly to get in. Might be expensive financially to get in. You might lose a lot of comfort trying to go there to share the gospel there. But the nations will not be deceived forever. Will they believe If I go, yes, some will. This view that I'm espousing this morning is sometimes called a pessimistic view because of what it believes about the suffering and the length of suffering that is going to happen. I think it's a ridiculous phrase. This is so hopeful. This is so hopeful. That as the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Syria to the ends of the earth, that it's going to be heard, it's going to be believed. That's not pessimistic. How long must we suffer Satan? Satan, we might have to suffer him as long as it takes to bring in all those who are the elect in all the nations. Answer number three, until the time is completed. How long must we suffer Satan? He's bound not to deceive. doesn't necessarily say that he's entirely bound from all of his activities, Until the time is complete. So what what do these numbers mean? How long is this really in matters of time? This is about time. This is about numbers and time. We've already seen many times in the book, in the, the book of Revelation, that numbers are symbolic. You may remember that Jesus is depicted as a lamb in chapter five with seven eyes and seven horns. I don't know if you drew that picture in your notes when we were there many weeks ago. Or that Israel is described as 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes making up 144,000. Or the fact that all of God's cycles of judgments are perfect cycles of seven bowls, seven angels, seven plagues, seven trumpets, the seven churches, or the seven lampstands. We could go on and on and on. Numbers are not always only numbers, right? It doesn't mean that we should only think of this as symbolic. The only way to think of this thousand years is symbolic and not a, a true counting thousand years. But it at least allows us to think, what is he actually meaning by this thousand years? Is it only chronological in its content and its meaning? Before we consider if it is a literal or symbolic 1,000 years, what does it mean to us either way in this passage? The answer is that a 1,000 years is a big, complete, definite amount of time, which in the passage is compared to a very small, indefinite amount of time. Now, that's in the Bible. That's in the passage. A thousand years is a big, complete, definite amount of time, which in this passage is compared to a very small, indefinite amount of time. One of the main emphasis of the millennium in this passage is not first its length per se, but its comparison in times. The thousand years is a comparison to a little while in this passage. There are two measurements of time in this passage for us to consider, not only the millennium. One is the thousand years where Satan is bound, when Satan is bound. The other is the little while at the end of verse three when Satan is released. And the Greek words for that phrase, a little while, I think would sound familiar to you if you hear, hear them. The Greek words are mikros chronos, micro time. Do you see what seems to be the main emphasis in time here? 1,000 years compared to just a little while. Today, we have thousands of a lot of things. Thousands of gigabytes of information. We send thousands of texts every week. Some can do that in days. We just drove 1,000 miles one way from Louisville to Austin in a day But a thousand years is a dramatically large number and a perfectly complete number. It is, like other places in Revelation, a Trinitarian multiple of another symbolic number. Ten, through the book of Revelation, is a number for completeness. And ten times ten times ten years is a long, whole completeness. How long must we endure Satan's suffering How long must we endure Satan's suffering? Here's what is actually going on, Christian. The thousand years is a complete, limited, whole, though long, period of time where Satan is bound from deceiving the nations compared with the little while where Satan must be released before he is finally defeated. Right now, church, it seems like Satan is having his way by opposing the church. Just read the book of Acts. As the gospel goes out to the nations from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, from Jerusalem, Stephen gets stoned by the Pharisees, James gets killed by the Romans, and then Paul, persecutions rest all through the epistles, Jesus promised persecution and death to the churches in Revelation. It seems like Satan is winning a lot but he isn't. Although Christians may be decapitated during the time between Jesus' resurrection and his return, the nations will not be deceived and so kept from Christ. Despite what the suffering may look like, what it may make you believe or question, Satan is actually bound for a thousand years. He is or he will be to make sure that the nations come in. This suffering is what it looks like when Satan is bound. And in the end, he is going to be released for a micros chronos, and the world will know, the world will know that it is coming to an end. The world as we know it now will come to an end after he is again released for just a little while. To put it in the context of the book of Revelation, that little while that he is released Seems to be speaking to that little while when he will be released in his plans, that he's been working together through the beast and through the kings and through the horns, through the governments that are going to come upon the people of God in the last days. He will be released for a little while to make sure that that happens. How long must we suffer and endure persecution? Satan is bound for a thousand years so the nations are not deceived. Deceived. The great commission cannot fail. Satan will be released for a short time in the end, but Christ will come and finally then defeat him forever. And the millennium is also a completion of God's purpose. This is seen in the word that John uses to describe the end of the thousand years. It's telion or telios. It's the same word used by Jesus when he was on the cross and he said, "It is finished." this word for time does not simply mean, oh, look at the time, right, on schedule. It means more than that. It means someone's will has been completed. The thousand years don't just end on the calendar. Their purpose gets fulfilled. The thousand years are over when their purpose is completed. The millennium is making us think and question what is more important to us? Helping us decide, in this life, what's more important to me? The way I understand this is to be between the time of Jesus' resurrection and his return, where the nations are not wholly deceived, and the mission of the church to preach the good news of Jesus to the nations cannot fail. However, all along the way, the church is going to suffer everything from losing our heads to losing our bread. This passage mentions those who had been beheaded in verse 4, meaning those who had been beheaded for the name of Christ. It also mentions those who did not take the mark of the beast in verse 4. That's a reference back to Revelation chapter 13, where we saw that those who did not take the mark of the beast would be kept from being able to buy or sell. So it seems like Satan is winning when We lose everything from our heads to our bread. Friends, that is not unique to any time when Christians are Christians on this side of Jesus' resurrection. Remember that this is how Jesus called his disciples to himself. Luke chapter nine, verse 23 to 26. This is what Jesus said. He said to all, if anyone would come after me You see, the call to come follow Jesus to everyone is come, lose everything. As Bonhoeffer put it this way, the call to Christ is a call to come and die. Come and lose your whole life. Come and take up your cross and follow me. That is the call to become a Christian. That is not just a call to certain time periods of God's plan and redemptive history. That's a call to be a Christian, to come and lose your whole life, that you might save it in Jesus Christ. Oh, but here's the problem. Satan loves to blind the mind of unbelievers, does he not? Satan, that great dragon, his beast in the world along with him, deceived the nations into following them. But you cannot believe in Christ if you are in mind and heart deceived. Luke 9 is helping us see the greatest tragedy. The greatest tragedy would not be decapitation, but Deception. You cannot come to Christ and believe in him if you are deceived. And it would be better to get Christ as your head and lose your head and go to hell forever. This is not what Satan is not is this not what Satan is doing all through the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 9 through 10. Paul is speaking about the development, the time of the end times, and he says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Speaking about those who are unbelievers, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, in their case, the God of this world has been blinded by the minds of unbelievers, he has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The great hope of Luke 9 and the millennium is the same hope that we might lose our heads but we are called to lose our lives and if we're not deceived by our own lust for things of the world and we believe in Christ we will be saved from our sin and raised to be with God forever. So for this thousand years, Christians, you might lose your head, you might lose your bread. Well, we are called to take up the cross and lose our lives for Christ's sake from the beginning. Even if we have to do that for a thousand years, so long as the commission, the great commission is achieved and those among the nations can hear the gospel, believe it and give their lives too so that all the nations may lose their lives on earth but gain it eternally in Christ. When we hear of the millennium, we are not... Seeing the nations no longer being deceived, we should rejoice that the mission of God will be accomplished. So we should and can do it with confidence that Satan is bound, cannot stop the nations from believing the gospel. Second question, what happens when we die? What happens when we die? Here we are suffering down here, God. We're losing our lives for the sake of the name of the gospel. We're losing our jobs. We're losing family. We're giving our lives down here for the sake of the gospel. What happens when we give our lives for Christ, whether we are beheaded in a moment for the name of Christ or whether we live for another 80 years only to die alone in a nursing home after proclaiming Christ for decades? What happens when we die? And more specifically, I think the question is, what happens when we die since there is no new heaven and no new earth yet? I mean, if we're in this period between the resurrection and when Jesus returns, if we're in this period between when Jesus has raised from the dead, conquering death, and that future period where there's going to be a new heavens and new earth, where do we go in between? What becomes of us, God? See, that's the hope. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, one of the things he sees later, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away, and the sea... Was no more. Well, there's gonna be a lot of people dying who are believing in Jesus between Jesus' resurrection and his return. The new heavens and new earth. A lot of Christians are gonna die before the new heavens and the new earth begin. So what happens to us, God? The answer comes in terms of what is going to happen to those who are Christians and those who are not Christians. As it's referred to in verse five, the rest of the dead. Here's the four answers in short really quickly. When we die, we are judged by a heavenly court. When we die, those who are in Christ are resurrected to spiritual life. After we die, we reign with Christ, serving as priests. And after we die, we are counted safe from hell forever. Answer one. Look at verse four judgment by a heavenly court. Then I saw thrones, depicting authority. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge, to decide, was committed. The point is that death comes judgment. This is not the final judgment mentioned later in chapter 20. It seems this may be like kind of a federal appeals court, just below the Supreme Court. Not the throne of God himself, but authoritative enough to determine someone's eternity. What's going on here? Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 17, "Beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues; you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles." It Was not Jesus himself his own fate decided in a court of men on the earth? And here's what Revelation 20 is saying. Heaven has judges too. Heaven has thrones too. When the courts of earth, whether they happen with all the power of a national government or whether courts happen at your Thanksgiving table with your family, when courts convict and judge you because of your faith, remember that there is an appeals court. Those who are being dragged into courts on earth know that there is a court in heaven. Here's a great shock to the world. The United States Supreme Court also has a higher court of appeals. The courts in Saudi Arabia and Yemen and China, the International Criminal Law Court has a higher court. When you die, your case goes before these thrones to this judgment where justice will be served on the basis of your faith in Jesus Christ, your allegiance to Jesus as your king, or the rejection of Jesus Christ as your king. It will be decided there, your final fate, not here on any earthly court, Roman or American or international or other. The only way to be justified in this court is not by good behavior. There are no plea bargains here. There is no parole offered here. There's no community service for repayment in this court. When you get to this court, you've already died. In this court, the only way to be justified is for the court, for these judges, to look you in the eye and say back to you the gospel that is offered to you when you're alive on earth. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 through 15 is an example of what may be read to you if you die trusting in Christ and you when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When you get to this court, that's your only hope. If the world decides to take your bread or to take your head, do not worry. You can appeal. Answer number two. Those who die in Jesus Christ will be raised spiritually. Spiritually spiritual resurrection. Verse four, also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. I think this is talking about Christians. I've got some overlap in my own views here of the the millennium and the, the, the timing and the meaning and the who and the when, but I think this passage just seems to be pretty clear talking about Christians, not, not so much about the few Christians who are technically beheaded or a very few Christians who, who don't take the mark of the beast. We, do, we talked about this way back in Revelation 13, the, the, the temptation to be deceived and take the mark of the beast is not a short, future, later time period. But an increasingly true experience by all Christians over the whole world to trust in governments and worldly institutions to give them their worship rather than worship Christ, to trust their military rather than trust Christ, to trust their economy rather than trust Christ, to trust their meaning and their glory rather than to trust in Jesus Christ. So, this is really about Christians, not just a group of Christians. The main division of people in this passage and throughout Revelation, I think this is so important for application, the main division of people in Revelation is not between our generation of Christians and some future generation of Christians who are really going to suffer for Jesus' name. The emphasis is not on those who worship Christ in this life. The emphasis is on those who worship Christ in this life and the division of those who choose the kingdom of Satan in this life those who take the mark of the beast by worshiping the power and the greed and the pleasure of the world. Instead, there are simply Christians who die after the resurrection of Jesus, but before the new heavens and the new earth are complete. And there are those who are not Christians who die before or after Jesus has raised from the dead, before he makes all things new. I liken it to this way, our new house is going to be built, but we do now have to live somewhere before we get into that new house. The end of verse four, they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They, that is Christians, came to life, those who died trusting Christ, they reign with Christ for the thousand years. That's where they go. This is, he says in the next verse, verse five, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first Resurrection. So Christians immediately experience the first resurrection. They immediately come to life spiritually and go to be with God and with Christ. Answer number three, what does that mean for us? It means that we reign with Christ and serve as priests throughout this millennium. Our temporary housing before the new heavens and new earth are complete is that we simply reign with Christ and serve as priests of God in Christ. When Colette and I moved back to Texas and to Millwood a few years ago, we had a little time between when we arrived in Austin and when our new home, which was being built, was finished, about a six-month period or so. So we did what any good upstanding 30-year-old with two children would do we moved in with my parents to save money. And that was kind of our between place. We knew that we had this home being built. We knew that it was coming, but it wasn't ready yet. So where did we go? We went to temporary housing. Now, usually when we go to temporary housing, right, if you've been between homes, or if you waited for a home to be built, or if you're living somewhere for a few months until you move, typically we tend to live in places in temporary housing that is settling for less than what you are moving into, will rent lower you'll you'll save some money you move to a place that wouldn't be your permanent place if it was you would just move there the point is where we go when we die is a temporary place the new heavens and the new earth are not there yet we're waiting for that second peter chapter 3 says as i'll read in a moment so this temporary dwelling place is our spiritual resurrection where we will reign with christ and serve as priests in the heavenly house of worship Just jog our memory about something here. We are already priests now, those who are in Christ on the earth. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 through 6 says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, making us priests to God and Father, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Being priests means that we are tending the worship of God through the blood now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By preaching and believing in the gospel, we're tending the worship of God by watching the holiness in our lives. Remember that this is the main picture of chapters 2 and 3 the church's lampstands. The, the church's lampstands for worship day and night in the presence of God that Jesus is tending. And here in chapter 1, he calls us priests. Well, we're already functioning like that here on earth, being about the worship of God on the earth. Well, what happens when we die? We reign with Christ and we serve as priests there. We get reassigned from the earthly priesthood of the local church to the heavenly priesthood where we are about the worship of Christ there. That Christian is just temporary housing for a thousand years until the new heaven and the new earth, the recreated garden, our forever home, is permanently forever built. We're raised spiritually to be with Christ as priest of both God and Christ in the place of worship. And lastly, when we die, we are counted safe from death and hell. You've seen those posts on social media so-and-so is safe from the tornadoes in Round Rock. John is counted safe from the shooting in downtown Austin, not that there has been one recently. It's a way to let loved ones know and let friends know that in the event of a great tragedy, well, they can go to your social media page and they can see you're marked safe in that event. Know that all those who trust in Jesus Christ as crucified for their sins trust that Jesus has risen from the dead to conquer the grave and pay for their sins, that when we die, we are going to mark ourselves counted safe from death and hell. When we die, when we go through the event of death itself, we will count ourselves safe from death and hell. Once we've died from this life and risen spiritually and with Christ, here's what it says, chapter 20, verse six. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in that first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and one and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. We actually get to count ourselves safe from that future second death if we're believing in Jesus Christ as we pass through the first death. What is the second death? Second death? I thought I only had to worry about. one. I thought I only had to die one time. What is the second death? And Jesus started talking about this back in Revelation chapter two, verse eleven, in his letter to the church. I believe it was at Smyrna. He who has an ear to hear, he says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Oh, there's two deaths we've got to worry about. There's the one that the Romans are threatening. There's the beheading death. There's the dying from having no bread death. There's a second death? He defines it for us in more clarity in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. What haunting words. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, those who are not in Christ, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death those who are not in Christ will not be awakened or raised in the time of the millennium. They will not be raised to that temporary court. They will will wake up later to that final judgment and they will wake up from their first death to find themselves facing the second death. Hell. Hell. And those who are raised after they die and are immediately raised to reign with Christ, they actually go to immediately mark themselves spiritually raised, kind of safe from that other future second death. It has no power. Over such, the second death has no power. Put your trust in Jesus Christ who died for your sins and rose from the grave. You too, if you believe in him, may tie that first death and be raised spiritually, but you will never have to face the power of the second death. Doubly saved from death are those who are in Jesus Christ. That's really good news for those who might lose their heads or their bread because they trust Christ. Let them have your heads. Let them have our bread. They cannot touch our lives. That can take this life. That can actually end our lives here on earth. Anyone can end our lives here on earth. The world and its governments, its hatred for Christians, anyone can end your life on the earth. But once you are raised spiritually with Christ, once there is, once you have entered past that appeals court into your temporary housing with Christ before the eternal state of heaven, well, that's the safe house. That's the place, that is the life to which the second death has no power, none, none. Let me close with Second Peter chapter 3, verse eight through 13, the finish of the passage that we began earlier. Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the day, Excuse me, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. When I read that, I hear the nation is no longer deceived, but that all should reach repentance, all his. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. That's the spaces. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all things, all these things thus are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought, to, ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens." in a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your son, Jesus Christ, and what all is entailed in the hope that he has died for sin, that he has risen from the grave that he ascended, that he lives now and is one day coming again. Father, we are in this time where we could lose our heads, we could lose our bread, we could lose our lives. Would you help us to be encouraged to continue in faith in Jesus Christ, to continue sharing our faith in Jesus Christ be convinced, to be strengthened in our faith, that Satan's suffering is limited under your sovereignty. Satan's deception cannot keep the gospel from going to the nations and being received. And it is, but a very short time, he will have his full way. Help us be encouraged, help us be strengthened in obedience and loving our spouses, our children, our neighbors, our coworkers with the rest, the hope that when we die, we raise. Though we might face the courts of government here, the courts of our friends here, there is an appeal court that will look for the blood of Jesus. Help us remember, Father, that when we die, we will reign, be with Christ, be with God for worship. And Father, help us be people who know, believe, and trust that to die trusting Christ is to be raised to new life over which the second death has no power by this, Father, help us be strengthened in faith. Help us be bold with our mouths. Help us be loving with our lives. Father, would you use this word? Help us walk in faithfulness in the days that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.